As you hear, I delete that Laura's Huerta. Thoughts come to your mind. The meaning of the song to you? Well, it's, uh, the song is, was about the women in the Mexican Revolution, and Adelita was a uh, story of a school teacher who joined the revolution, and uh, I guess it was sort of dedicated to her. She was a mm. person who was, I guess, quite active, yeah. and she sort of became a, a, a myth and a symbol of yeah. the of the women yeah. in the revolution. Well, we'll come, of course, to the women with the farm workers and their role, yours specifically, as well as your life. I thought perhaps in before you talk about your life, as a friend of yours, someone you know, Roberto Acuna, and uh, I asked him once about working his job, and uh, he remembered his childhood, and this is what he remembered. Feels, because she had no money to go to the hospital. This was what state and where? Arizona. Arizona, yeah. And uh, the thing here is that uh, she would go out there and, uh, and try and scratch a living, even though she was pregnant, and she couldn't go out to the to get any type of medical attention because she knew darn well that there wasn't enough money to keep us eating, you know. So I went through the awful experience of uh, having to take lunch to school every other day, sometimes not even every other day. I'd go barefoot to school, and the bad thing about that is that uh, not so much going barefooted, but that they used to laugh at us. They used to, used to make us think like we were something out of this world. Who is they? The people that were going to school, the young uh, other students. Uh, they uh, were Anglos? Yes, the majority were. There was only about 15 kids that were migrants that used to come and stay there sometimes for the rest of the season. And uh, they would laugh because you bring tortillas and frijoles, or in English, beans and tortillas, to lunch. And they would have their nice little compact lunch boxes with uh, cold milk in their thermos, and they would laugh at us because all they had was dry tortillas, you know. And I realized then, like I realize now, that uh, it wasn't their fault. And uh, another experience that I had Later in life, I was still in school. It must have been about sixth grade. I wanted to become, not become, I wanted to, I wanted to be accepted. And uh, it was during the 4th of July, just before, maybe a month or so before. And they were trying out students for uh, this uh, patriotic play they're going to have. So I set up my ideals. I wanted to be or play the part of uh, President Lincoln, Abe Lincoln, because I saw in him the man I thought I could, you know, relate to. So I learned the Gettysburg inside and out so I could have the part. And I, I would go home and I'd study. I'd be out in the fields picking the crops and I'd be studying and memorizing. I'd come home, I'd be taking a shower and I'd be studying. I learned it inside and out. I went to school for the tryouts to find out who was going to get the part of Abe Lincoln. So each person went through their recital. But I was the only one that didn't have to read or stutter over it because I learned it. And uh, the part was given to a, a young girl, which was a grower's daughter, because she had better diction. And she she had to read other book, but she had better diction. And uh, I was very disappointed simply because I didn't have to read another book. The only excuse they gave me for not giving me the uh, part was because my Spanish accent was too heavy and uh, they couldn't understand it at the time.
So I, from then on, decided that I would not participate in any play, any activities that were to be uh, part of the uh, school activities. So I just forgot about it, went to the fields. I quit school about the eighth grade, and I went to work in the fields. And anytime it's anybody talked to me about uh, politics, about voting, anytime they talked to me about uh, civil rights, I would ignore it because I knew that I didn't see any of that in school. It's a funny thing, you know, that uh, those years, you know, usually for a young person are very sweet memories, you know, but to a farm worker, to myself and other people like myself, that is, it's a very uh, degrading thing because you can't express yourself. They wanted us to speak English in the school classes, I mean, yeah, in school classes on the grounds. And a lot of us were not educated in English to begin with, so we had to uh, really... As Alicia, Alicia Medina is here, as, as Roberto Acuna, your friend and his, is telling the story, he said he was born in the fields, too, and started working. He was about seven, eight, I think. Is that familiar to you? Did you hear this? Well, that is, the, I guess, the story of the vast majority of the Mexican-Americans in this country. And uh, the thing that's uh, tragic about it is that uh, Roberto's story could be told again today by a farm worker who is now following the crops in California, Texas, Oregon, and even New York State, and I imagine right here in Illinois, so that it hasn't changed at all. It's still exactly the same. And in some cases, I think it might be even worse because uh, when Roberto was young, uh, when I was young, there was radio, but there wasn't television. And now the children can see on television what other people have and what they don't have. And the whole degradation or the whole feeling of uh, this humiliation, this inferiority that is instilled into people is uh, just so devastating that it's, uh, I think poverty is one thing. People can understand poverty. They can understand not having enough to eat, but they can't understand uh, racism and they can't understand the kind of degradation they like the mm. scene that Roberto described because that there is no explanation for. I mean, there's no excuse for that. What was your, you from New Mexico, what was your childhood memories like? Well, I was born in a coal mining town. My fa family were all coal miners. Uh, my dad did farm work and also you know, along, you know, I was born during the Depression. And uh, my father had to migrate to the states of Wyoming and Nebraska and following the sugar beet crops. So when we were very small, we you know, went along with my dad and lived in the tar paper shacks and uh, saw all of the life that a farm worker lives. There was a tremendous stigma attached to farm work. So my mother and my father divorced. I went to California with my mother. And my mother had a good head for business. So she uh, worked a couple of jobs and always managed to open up a small business. And because of the stigma about farm labor, she would never let me as a young girl go into the fields because women in the fields are treated uh, pretty badly. An attractive woman, particularly, well, not even that, but you know, you're sort of a prey to the labor contractor or the foreman. You know, you you have to uh, uh, be subjected to all kinds of in indecent advances, and uh, so my mother didn't want me working in the fields. Uh, my brothers worked uh, all the time, but she 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 didn't want me to be in the fields at all. She would let me go to some of the packing sheds after. Uh, I used to te tease my mother because I told her you retarded my education, mm -hmm. <laughs> and. Uh, after I grew up and then I started going into the fields also and of course was shocked at the kind of brutal work that you have to do as a farm worker. It's not, uh, the work itself is so brutalizing because of the tonnage that you have to pick. I mean, it's just not 
like picking an apple and putting it into a basket or picking a tomato. You have to grovel. You have to be on your knees. You have to bend over. You have to crawl. And the speed at which you have to work makes um, farm work. To be, to be a farm worker, you have to be as physically fit as an athlete or a dancer. It's that, it's that kind of ex excruciating exercise. And this is why you see a farm worker uh, maybe who was 30, and that farmer girl already looks like they're 45 because of the brutalizing speed of the work. And, you know, it, it's uh, the, the whole idea of just, uh, say, as a woman working in the field uh, where you don't have a toilet, you know, that kind of degradation. And, you, and if you're in a tomato field or nowhere where there's a tree and you have to go to the bathroom, there's no place within 20 miles that you can go to the toilet at because you're way out in the middle of a field somewhere. And, you know having to bear your body, having to uh, drink out of a beer can, you know, that, that, that everybody in the crew is drinking out of the same beer can with people that you don't know. And this is the water that you have to drink, hot water with a, out of an empty beer can. And these things are deliberate, you see. It's not because somebody forgot to bring the water. It's just that this is very deliberate. It's the whole uh, idea of, of degrading the worker. And the idea is to kill the spirit of that worker to the point that the worker will no longer want to stand up, where the person begins to see himself as a subhuman individual. So it's all a, it's all done very, very deliberately to yeah. keep the people down. Yeah. If I ask you about the conditions themselves, of course, when did you, you, Dolores Huerta, who were now so eloquent in speaking of this, when did you get the feeling that you had to, were you aware of this all the time, that there was a possibility of something else? Well, I always worried growing up, um, like Roberto did, about this not being accepted, about what was different about us as Mexicans. You know, uh, why why weren't we? I mean, there was just something very different, and I, I had the usual uh, humiliating experiences and the ex experiences of racial discrimination, which were, in fact, they even got so bad in my lifetime that I almost had a nervous breakdown when I was about 13 years old because I couldn't comprehend uh, why even in school when my papers were so very good the teachers would never give me good grades because they accused me of having other people write my papers for me you know never being accepted no matter what you did you just couldn't be accepted and uh, so I was very concerned about racial discrimination and then uh, I got into the whole farm labor uh, situation sort of uh, indirectly although I was raised in a hotel where all the people were farm workers they fed us you know mm -hmm. they had a small hotel and she had people that would rent a room for a dollar mm -hmm. a day and uh, so this is the way that she like a company them. hotel yeah it was like yeah she raised us in this in this little hotel but I hadn't really gone out you know into the homes of some of the families of those workers and I went out there we were doing a voter registration drive with Fred Ross the man who organized me and who organized Caesar and we went into some of the homes of people that I knew, kids that I was going to high school with, and you saw that their, their homes didn't have any, they didn't have floors. I mean, they had dirt floors, they didn't have wooden floors, they didn't have plumbing. Uh, you know, many times the stove was just a little single burner. Uh, and, and then you start thinking, and I had been out in the fields and I knew how hard the people worked. And then you see the kind of housing that they had, and boy, you say something is wrong. And that was during the time when they had all of the Mexican braceros here who were behind barbed wire. And you know, just you saw this whole sordid, uh, a horrible system, and I just got, you know, felt like I had to do something to, to mm -hmm. change it. Then I, I started teaching school, as a matter of fact. I had a chance to go to college, and I was in, in, in a classroom, and I would see the children of the farm workers come in, and these were white children, by the way. The, the school I taught in, it was a, se a, a segregated neighborhood and segregated mm -hmm. school, so there mm -hmm. were uh, just a few Mexican-Americans, just a few, uh, no blacks at all, a few Filipinos, a few Asians. But you would see the children come in there with their little, you know, 
um, bones sticking out of their shirts and with their t-shirts, I mean, with their little tennis shoes, all raggedy. And you couldn't do anything. As a teacher, I would try to get free milk for the children. I would try to get free lunches for them. You could see that they were obviously hungry and ill-clothed. But the principal, who also was from Arkansas, was with one of the Grapes of Wrath people, his attitude was if they want something, they have to go, you know, they now have wait, to go back Now, wait, I get this. Now, here you come to something. This principal is one of the Grapes. He was originally called an Oki. Right. And he was put upon and abused during the 30s, during right. the drought, and he was in a jalopy like mm-hmm. the Joe mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. And he changed. That's right. That's, that's, that's very common, too, yeah. because they don't want to identify. And he felt, well, if they want free lunches, they have to go down to the welfare department. They have to grovel. You know, they have to beg, this kind of a inhumane. So I just decided one day that uh, Fred Ross and I were registering voters out in front of a cannery, and I had a report for my school, school semester, and I just made the decision right at that second, I'm not going to go back to being a school teacher because as a school teacher, I can't do one thing to help these children. Maybe as an organizer, I can. And I guess that was a very important decision because I... I decided to, to to stay in organizing, and then afterwards, when Caesar started the union, he asked me to join him when he started organizing mm-hmm. the. Because you you are Dolores Dolores Huerta, you're in the midst of this battle. Yet you also have you are mother of ten children. Yes, yes. How do you do it? Well, uh, I feel very strongly that um, that uh, I feel very strongly that the children should be for one thing. Uh, I believe, I guess in. I guess in that respect, sort of a religious sense, in that you know children should be allowed to be born, and I also feel that there's so much work to be done that I hope that out of my ten children, if even half of them, you know, will get into organizing and will work to help. I I'm not interested in my kids uh, being attorneys or being professionals or or you know if they want to do something like that, good. Well, you know, I wouldn't try to keep them because I want them first of all to be happy. But I'm hoping that out of all, all of my ten children, that at least a few of them will feel the sense uh, of the need to, uh, to work for justice strongly enough yeah. that they will stay with people and work with people and help, yeah. to help people to get together in organization. Yeah. How long? So then you joined Cesar Chavez. And we'll hear his voice, too. As you remember, in hard times, he was reflecting his childhood mm-hmm. and humiliation and memories. Uh, when, how long now have you been working with uh, the farm workers? Well, I started working with the community service organization in 1955, and that's when I first got involved with farm workers in the Mexican Bracero system and what have you. And uh, then when Caesar started the union in 1962, uh, then I officially started with Caesar. Then, but we had worked with, we had formed a couple of uh, labor organizations. I worked with the Agriculture Workers Organizing Committee, mm-hmm. and with another group called AWA that was chartered by the meat cutters. Mm-hmm. I organized that mm-hmm. group of people in Stockton, mm-hmm. my my hometown. And Oregon, you're a woman. Now we come to one of these things, you know, women and you and battles and work, and we hear, you know, among. Mexican, Mexican-American people among men. You know, the old mm. the phrase is, is a Spanish phrase, machismo. Well, Anglos have it, of course, mm. it's one of the problems in the world today. How did, uh, did the men accept the women finally as, as colleagues in the battle? Well, I think that that's a little yeah. over, yeah. I, I think that the stigma, uh, the stereotype is a little bit, what, yeah. what machismo means is guts, mm. you know? Machismo, women can have machismo. You know, machismo means that, you're, you're, that, you, that, you, that, you, that you feel a sense of your own strength and mm. your own power mm. to get out there and yeah. do things. And I, I, you really don't find that much uh, discrimination against women among poor people. And that's not only true about Mexicans, but that's also true about black, white. That's interesting. That's, yeah. See, because among poor people, you have the woman of the household. She is right there by the side of her man, working, if need, you know, working out there. And of course, when you get into a strike situation, you see the women out there picketing. You know, uh, you're going to see that when we talk about the film later on. The women are right out there in front, you know, and and so you you have more of a of a partnership, I think, in the family situation, and they don't get hung up with all yeah. of these. Uh, 
you know, of what I should do or what you shouldn't do. I think the farm worker women see, say, like the the, the feeding and, and of, of, of the family as, as a labor of love. You know, they don't see it as a burden. They see children, the whole concept of children is very different. You see children as a blessing. You don't see them as a burden. You know, you don't see them as somebody's taking your time away from to do something else, you know. I guess that's one of the reasons why I insist on, on, on having children is because I want to prove to people that you can be active and also have a family. And sure, your kids aren't going to get all of the attention that a middle-class child would get, you know, but they're getting something else uh, in return, which is they're, they're, they're being involved in something yeah. very important. It's interesting, because in, in Chicago, there's a woman, Mary Lou Wolf, and she's become a very active mother of nine children, mm-hmm. and uh, she was in the home all the time, and one day she realized something had to be done in the community and became a leader and a spokesman. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, Though she is uh, Italian American, you know, I mean, uh, the 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 uh, parallel is quite mm-hmm. a working working class woman, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that happens. And so we come to the question of children, by the way, and labor. For years, this has been the case. The whole family to survive hasn't been used by the labor contractors. Again, it's 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 another thing that is that is uh, deliberate. The in, among the farm workers, because of the speeds at which they work, a farm worker by the time he's get, he's forty is worn out. And so then the labor contractor will say to the farm worker or the employer, the grower, they'll say, you want to work? How many, how many manos do you have at home? How many hands do you have at home? So then that farm worker is forced to bring his family into the field. If that man wants to eat, he has got to bring his children into the field or he does not have a job. Because what the, what the, the way that the employer sees that is they hire the man and his wife and the children, that's one, and they pay them with one paycheck, you see? So they're getting the work of, of, of many people for the price of one. Is exactly the way that they do it. Now, that farm worker, if he is 40, if he is 50, even more so, cannot get a job unless he brings his family in there. It was interesting that during the strike, the grape strike in Coachella in 1973, this the team... in California. In California, right. After the farm workers went on strike there, the Teamsters Union made up a leaflet with their horse symbol on it asking 12-year-old children to come in and pick grapes. Mm. You know, a leaflet recruiting 12-year-old children to come and yeah. pick grapes. There's interesting about the, we know some of the growers, certain wine companies, Gallo here, say we have a contract with the Teamsters. Teamsters, they represent the farm workers. What's interesting is that during all these years of struggle, when the farm workers union was just being born, Teamsters weren't interested. Once the farm workers play a role, they suddenly become interested. How come? Studs, it's not even that noble. The Teamsters Union has represented cannery workers in California. These are Spanish-speaking cannery workers since 1938. My mother was in the cannery workers' strike that they had in California. And the AFL-CIO organized the cannery workers and turned them over to the Teamsters on a silver platter. To this day, those, t- those cannery workers don't have any, and they don't have any benefits, you know. For, the, for our union, in three years that we had our contracts, we set up five medical clinics. We, you know, without any tax, you know, tax money, these are clinics that we built. We raised the money for them. Five good, competent, staffed clinics. We, we paid out $4.5 million in medical, in medical payments to farm workers. Uh, you know, we built a service center, we built a retirement village, we have a credit union for the farm workers that has lent the farm workers about $2.5 million of their own savings and paid them a dividend. You compare that record of three short years, what we did for our members, with the 20 years that the Teamsters have had those contracts in the canneries. Yeah. See, their, their interest is not in helping our people at all. Their interest is in continuing to keep the farm workers and the Spanish-speaking people in California pol- politically impotent, you know, without any kind of participation in, in government, to keep them voiceless, you know, th- their interest is actually in helping the growers to keep the, f- the Mexican people totally oppressed. Yeah. And so I t- that's why I say it's not even that noble. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know whether you know this or not, but one of the, their president of the Modesto local, uh, Ted Gonzalez. No, Modesto is the center of Modesto the, uh, is where Gallo is headquartered. Mm-hmm. The president of that local, 
Ted Gonzalez of the Teamster Local in Modesto, California, is in jail, and he's been sentenced. He got a one-year jail sentence for receiving a $10,000 bribe from the lettuce growers, and he's in, he's in, he's already put away, and so on. You know, you can go right through their whole list of people out there, and, uh, and that's exactly uh, where they're at. By the way, it's a quite you mind this guy being in jail as a as a quite beautiful movie tonight. I might mention it now and later. It's uh, involves the strike. It's a film, a documentary called Fighting for Our Lives. It's the Farm Workers Union, and there's songs and music in it. But also we see some of the guys and the words of these guys who want to break the strike, and it's remarkable. How it's called Fighting for Our Lives at the El Palacio Theater tonight at 4040 North Sheridan, 8 o'clock. And you, Dolores, what, you're going to talk there too, aren't you? Right. And I hope people can come to see yeah. that because they're going to see a different farm worker than they saw in Migrant and in the NBC White Paper. They're going to see a farm worker that has had a taste of dignity you know, a farm worker that had a little bit of control out there in the fields over the way that he worked, you know, his, where he was free from pesticide poisoning, and, and they're going to see those farm workers fighting for their contracts. Yeah. And uh, well, that, uh, the spirit that, uh, when, when people see that spirit, then they're not going to believe any of this propaganda that the Gallo people and these other people are trying to put out, that the, that the farm workers do not want the United Farm Workers. Mm. I'd like this, you know, do you know about the full-page ad that came out today? Well, tell about it. Uh, the day of the, you know, there's an ad. Yeah, there was a full-page ad by the Gallo. The Gallo Wine Company is spending about $13 million in a big propaganda campaign, and they're trying to get people to stop supporting the boycott. And, uh, of course, Caesar has said that their millions will not buy them the truth. No matter how much money they spend, they can't buy the truth. Uh, and they are saying that, uh, well, we, we have asked them for an election. We had an election at Gallo, first of all. That they kind of forget to mention in the ad. In 1966, we had an election at Gallo, which we won under the State Mediation Service. And then we got had a contract, and we had a contract there for six years. And in 73, they turned around and did the same as the grape growers and signed a backdoor agreement with the Teamsters. And uh, 12 executives, the Sterling Carey of the National Council of Churches, and 12 executives of the National Council met with the Gallo people and offered... Caesar offered to put up a bond for an election. We wanted an election so badly in 73 that we were willing to pay for it ourselves. The union was willing to pay for it. And the National Executive Council took this offer to the Gallo Wine Company, and they refused the offer. They, are, they won't have an election because they know that we'll win. Even with the strike breakers that they've brought in, they know that we will win. The picture, by the way, shows some remarkable scenes of these uh, strike breakers. But the, the important thing, one of the things, you just said something. The taste of dignity is there among mm -hmm. the farmers. They're, they're not groveling anymore. You Absolutely know, uh, not, not. Fearful. No. You see them going to jail joyfully, you know, and... Uh, you know, some of the questions come, of course, the big question of uh, the growers' use of the illegals, uh, the people who come, the desperate people mm -hmm. who leave Mexico just for survival of bread, and that becomes a problem, doesn't it? They don't leave Mexico. They, they send recruiters into mm -hmm. Mexico to bring them up here. It was mm -hmm. just like the Grapes of Wrath, yeah. you know, where they showed the people mm -hmm. recruiting people in, in, mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the Southwest. They send people into Mexico, and they ask people to come here. You know, they send recruiters down into Mexico, and then they bring them up here. Once they're here, they, d they charge them two to $300 per person. They deduct it from their paychecks. They don't get paid. They, they, they're housed like animals, 30 to 40 to a room without any sanitation. Uh, they're injured. We, we discovered uh, a, a farm worker, uh, an illegal, who had been picking peaches, and the ladder broke, and the, the broken ladder went up his anus, and they didn't even take this man to a doctor. And one of the farm workers found him and took him over to one of our clinics. But this man could have died. But they don't care. They're, they're, to them, they're just, uh, they're just tools. They're implements. You know, they're not people. Uh, that, it's a horrible thing. And uh, there's no... Uh, the Teamsters Union is, is con also cooperating and the growers and the, and the government and letting this happen. 
It's a terrible thing. Yeah. Is a way of reaching, you reach some of the illegals, the people. Oh, these they, people, of course yeah. they support the union. Yeah. What are they going to do? Yeah. They're brought in here. They don't know where they're going to go work yeah. at. They're told we have a job for you in California. Yeah. They don't know where they're going to come and break the strike or not break the strike. Yeah. They, they pulled out 20, by the way, they pulled out 20 farm workers out of the Gallo Wine Company last week. And on Friday, on April the 11th, two farm workers were electrocuted at the Gallo Wine Company. Because in our contracts, we have very strict language about the use of machines. Well, they brought in a hydraulic stapler in there that hadn't even been tested, and two of the farm workers who were operating that stapler mm -hmm. were electrocuted. Yeah. We haven't talked about insecticides either and, and, the, and uh, the effect on farm workers, the illnesses and the diseases. Well, it's, it's the, the thing is that, I again, in our contracts, we have very, s very you know, strong safety protections. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we don't let them use DDT or Aldrin or Endrin or any of these uh, pesticides that are harmful to consumers. Well, uh, now it's business as usual. Now that th they have the, take, you know, that we have, they have stolen contracts from us, they're just using pesticides the way that yeah. they always did before. Let's return, we'll return to Dolores Huerta, my guest, just describing the life of farm workers and herself and uh, the farm workers and their battle. And the question of machines, we hear Cesar Chavez's voice, more songs, and more about lives. In a moment, after we hear from Jim Unrath on this message. Dolores Huerta is my guest. She's the first vice president of the Farm Workers Union. She's speaking tonight. Oh, speaking isn't the word, just uh, talking of her life and lives of her colleagues and people she knows, farm workers, at the Palacio Theater in this very beautiful film, Fighting for Our Lives. This documentary will be there. It's 4040 uh, North Sheridan, 8 o'clock tonight. You said we're talking about machines now. Uh, something new in the world has happened. What about technology and farm workers? Well, it's, it's not, some machines are good, some machines are bad. The machines that totally replace the workers, like the cotton machines, like the um, grape picking machines for wine grape, are very bad. And I'll tell you why, because we, there's an article in today's paper that they're going to give the cotton farmers more subsidies. All right. You, uh, some of these cotton farmers are, p are big oil companies, like Beef Gas and Oil, uh, Tentacle Gas and Oil. These are men who are already so, f uh, corporations that are already so fantastically wealthy that they don't need any more money. The Jamara Corporation is another one. They, you know, they get a million dollars, three million dollars, four million dollars from the taxpayers not to grow any cotton. Okay, then they have, they don't give that money back to anybody. It doesn't go to workers because they have a cotton picking machine that picks the cotton, right? You have grape picking machines. The wine companies have been making fabulous fortunes. So they develop a machine that's, by the way, developed by the taxpayers because, you know, they do it through the agricultural extensions in the universities. And then they put this machine out. And what happens to all of those farm workers who did that work? They all have to go on welfare. So you have the taxpayers giving these men subsidies, number one, not to grow things. You know, they get up at the crack of noon not to grow something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, then they develop machines for them. You know, and then they have to put the, then the taxpayers have to support the people who were put out of work by the machines. Now, what do these corporations do with all this money? I mean, what can they possibly do well, with it? Well, they buy another industry. They buy another industry, <laughs> right. They just that's what multinationals are all about. That's right. And, and the, whole, the whole thing is pretty rotten. Now, another, another problem with technology, let's take the tomato machines. They have a tomato machine that goes in, and they develop these horrible tomatoes that the machine picks. Uh, but, the, but the savings don't get passed on to the consumer. A, a, a housewife goes into uh, Jewel Tea and she has to pay, uh, you know, a, a fantastic amount of money for her tomatoes. That tomato didn't cost anything to pick, nothing. But they don't pass the savings on to mm -hmm. the consumer, you see? So it's a one big giant ripoff all the way down the line. And well, we think that it's got to be, there's got to be some, not all of the benefits of technology should go s just to the corporations, yeah. especially when they don't pay a thing to have them yeah. developed. Now, th this raises a question about technology itself. See, there are some machines invented so that people would need not do back-breaking labor, see. 
Well, I agree, but again, I think yeah. that the savings from the yeah. machine yeah. should be passed yeah, on to course. the public, mm-hmm. and they should be passed yeah. on to the to the yeah. farm workers. Isn't there also a question the farm workers union? If I remember uh, Roberto Acuna talking mm-hmm. to me about also wants the people to be taught to use some of these new machines ex- too. Well. Sure, that's true, and also they shouldn't. They shouldn't expect the like the Gallo Wine Company did last week. They shouldn't expect the, the, to experiment with live yeah. people on machines that are not yet perfected, and they end up killing two of the farm workers. One of them was a 21-year-old kid yeah. that was killed. You know, this is wrong. I mean, they shouldn't have this. Uh, they shouldn't have the right to do this. And yeah. if we would have had that contract, like we had it before, those men they couldn't have brought that machine in that field. No way that they could have brought it, and we wouldn't yeah. have let them. Yeah. You know, we're not going to let them experiment with our people. Once the, uh, under Regan, they had a, this pesticide that they wanted to use our farm workers, our grape pickers, to experiment with this pesticide to see how harmful it was. <laughs> Thanks you a lot. You using, yeah, using the grape the yeah, grape they wanted to use as the guinea pigs. As guinea pigs to test the pesticide. And <sighs> we're saying, no, you can't do that. You know, this is what the whole struggle is about. It's about farm workers being able to say, you can't do that to me. You know, you've got to let me live a decent life and, and, and a good life and, and, and an adequate life with, you know, adequate earnings. But you're not going to, you're not going to. By the way, there has been, from what I gather, it, with the pesticides and these other insecticides, there has been a, a good number of wo- workers affected, have been, haven't they? Well, we, we don't know the exact numbers, but the estimates have been that anywhere between 800 and 1,000 people are killed yearly by pesticides. And then what they do, the local doctors will doctor up the reports to make it appear that they weren't pesticides. They say he died of meningitis or they died of sunstroke. And the whole thing is so out of control. And the thing, again, you go back to your oil companies. They push these pesticides on the farmers. Sometimes some of these smaller farmers don't, or they say the supervisors, like technical gas and oil, they, they own 1,500,000 acres of land. They have grape fields. They have onions. They have citrus. They have everything. And they push the pesticides, and the people don't know what they're using. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned smaller farmers. Do you, uh, do you, do you have allies among some of the smaller farmers? We do have uh, a couple of small contracts with small farmers. We have one farmer who only has nine acres of grapes, and we have another one who has a couple of hundred acres of grapes, and they are very decent people because, you see, they grow food to feed people. They don't grow food to make exorbitant profits, so they are very decent human beings, and that is the kind of a farmer that America thinks that we have. But they don't realize that we don't have that kind of a farmer. What we have is we have agribusiness. We have these greedy corporations who are making their money from oil and who are making their money from agriculture and that really want to control the food supply. Yeah, of course, this is the big change. Naturally, in the past generation, mm-hmm. past 30, 40 years, is uh, the diminishing in the number of small farmers, of family farms and uh, agribusiness, of course. And what they the do is they squeeze them out of the market. You have uh-huh. people like Tenneco, again, uh, they have the Sun Giant label. They have just planted like thousands of acres of almonds. Okay, they're going to squeeze every small almond grower out of business because they can't compete with them on the marketplace. You know, they have this national distribution. And then what they do is once they squeeze the f- small farmers out, then they totally control uh, the price of the crop. And what they do is that they destroy food. You know, they talk about world hunger. Well, the Del Monte Corporation was responsible for the destruction of about 64% of the peach crop in 1971. They didn't pick it because they didn't want the price of peaches to go, to go down. And the citrus, uh, well, 19% of the walnut crop was destroyed last December, you know? Now, Gloris, as you're talking, of course, you connect everything. You see one thing is related to another. That's you suddenly you see it all related right. from the from the battle of the farm workers, and you see suddenly consumers involved too, and everybody, and for small farmers. And, I, and it's a direct line because, uh, f- first of all, every time somebody sits down to eat, a farm worker is feeding them. A farm worker somewhere has picked that food, and that food that the f- that you see in the store that you know it comes directly from the field. Farm workers' hands have touched that food. And it hasn't gone through any other process. They pack the, f- the, the food in the field, it's put on a boxcar, and it's shipped to the market, and it's taken into the, into the store, into the supermarket. So that comes directly from the farm worker. Now, if that food has been picked where there isn't a toilet, 
that food may be contaminated. Mm. You see? That's why it's so important to get those contracts back, you know, so that the pharmacists can be, have their toilets and their hand washing facilities. And so, it, like we did with our medical teams, we went into the labor camps and gave people tests for tuberculosis, you know, to see if there were any contamin contaminable diseases. And we pulled them out of the labor force, you know. This is the kind because we care about about we depend on the consumers, you know. Like right now, we are totally dependent on the public to win our our struggle for us. We can't as, they, as people will see in the film. We can't win through a strike because they you know they arrest our people, they beat them, they kill them. So we have to bring our fight here to the cities, and then we have to ask people to help us get justice by by not buying the product, by not buying grapes, by not buying the iceberg lettuce, by not buying the gallo wine. Question: there, There's some lettuce. What is it? Bib lettuce can. Is bib okay. lettuce is okay. And by the way, we promote the eastern lettuce too. We don't have mm -hmm. any dispute with the with mm -hmm. the Ohio or mm -hmm. you know, any of the eastern lettuce, New York, New Jersey lettuce. We promote that lettuce. We ask people to buy that. And also the other kinds of lettuce, but it's just the round iceberg, mm. the one that looks like mm. a, like a cabbage, you know, the head yeah. lettuce. Chicago, I understand, is one of the tough spots here. Chicago. Well, mm. Chicago has always been a very sympathetic community. See, our big problem is that we haven't got the money to buy a full-page ad like the Gallo Wine Company. They can buy a full-page ad and put down four or five lies in there, and we haven't got any way to buy a full-page ad. So we've got to just appeal to the public through the to the regular media, you know, because we haven't got that kind of money mm. to be able to buy ads. I'm thinking about. Uh, yourself and the people. We should hear perhaps the voice of your friend, your colleague, mm -hmm. your brother-in-law, Cesar Chavez. Mm -hmm. And this is his memory uh, in when I saw him several years ago, you remember, and this is memory of childhood himself. So following the crops, ask about that phrase mm -hmm. too, following the crops. Oh, I remember such things as um, having to move out of our house and uh, my father had brought in a uh, team of horses and a uh, wagon. And uh, we had always lived in that house, and so we couldn't understand why we were moving out. And I tried to ask him why, and he would tell me that, well, we're moving to another house. But to me, there wasn't enough of an explanation, because why should we be moving to another house? I remember it very vividly. Because when we got to the other house, it was the worst house. It was a poorer house. And, and uh, then the next recollection is we were in California, and uh, we were migratory workers. It was a strange life. Although we had been poor, we knew every night that there was a bed there, and there was this, this was our room, and, and uh, uh, there was a kitchen, and, uh, well, it was sort of settled life, you know. And we had chickens and hogs and uh, eggs and all these things. But that all of a sudden changed, and, uh, well, when you're small, you, you, you can't figure these things out, except that, you know, it's something... It's not right, and you, you don't like it, but you don't question it, and you don't let that get you down. You sort of just continue to move. But uh, going back, I remember that this must have had uh, quite an impact on my, especially on my father, because he had been used to owning the land, and all of a sudden then there was no more land. Uh, we were pretty new when we went, and we had never been migratory workers. We were green. And uh, we were taken advantage of quite a bit by the labor contractor and the crew pusher in some very severe ways. You know, we trusted everybody came around, and every time that you're traveling in California with all of your belongings in your car, and it's very obvious they're up on top of the roof, and you know. So this is uh, bait for the uh, labor contractor. Anywhere we stopped, there was a labor contractor offering all kinds of jobs and good wages, and we were always... Uh, deceived by them. We always went uh, trusting them, and uh, so we got into some real predicaments there. But uh, there were strikes in those days everywhere. But 
the strikes never, uh, most of the strikes were, for instance, uh, we were one of the striking this family, I guess, that uh, my dad would just, uh, didn't like the conditions, and he began to agitate, and we'd leave, and then some families would follow, and we'd go elsewhere. Sometimes we'd come back, couldn't find a job elsewhere, so we'd come back and sort of beg for a job. And the employers would know, and they would make it very humiliating to, to get back. Did the strikes ever win? Never. Never won. No. The humiliation that uh, you go through is so, so um, cutting, so damaging, uh, you'll never forget it. For instance, I remember along the highway, there were signs in most of the small restaurants that said white trade only. And uh, my dad read English, but he really didn't know the meaning. Uh, and so he went to get uh, some coffee, a thermos, for my mother. And, uh, you know, you're a kid, you, he asked us not to come in. So we, we followed anyway. And we went into this small restaurant, and uh, he walked in and asked for the coffee. And this young waitress said, uh, we don't serve Mexicans here, get out of here. And then she turned around and continued her conversation. I'm sure that she never knew how much she was hurting us. But you know, uh, it, it uh, stayed with us. And uh, as, as uh, those places where we'd go and we'd say, well, there's not enough money. We can't live on 17 cents. I started earning 12 cents an hour when I started working. And so 12 cents an hour. That was in agriculture. The other places were paying then 25 cents an hour, but we were getting 12 in the fields. And uh, we can't live on 12 cents an hour. I said, well, if you don't like it, you can go. You know where to go. The fact that he wasn't paying more money wasn't the most important thing then. At that point, the disregard you know, for, for justice you know, becomes the, the total problem. You know, when they say, well, if you don't like it, then there isn't anything you can do. Shut the door, and uh, that is what uh, sticks in it. What happened to your father? He worked in agriculture until, oh, some 10 years ago, I guess. He uh, uh, couldn't work any longer. He was uh, too old. He's uh, getting some Social Security and also still suffering because of the inadequacies of Social Security coverage for farm workers. Uh, all the workers are getting, what, $80, $90 a month. He gets, I think it's $42, because simply because he was a farm worker. A farm worker, not covered by Social Security. Not until January 1st of 1955. But as far as that piece of land that he wanted? Oh, never. Never got that. Never, never got that. Some people uh, put this out of their minds. Forget him. Uh, I don't. I don't want to forget him. I mean, I don't want to uh, let them uh, take the best of me, but I want to be there because um, this is what happened. And uh, this is the truth, you know, history. He says it's history. Uh, your thoughts on hearing Caesar's memories, uh, Dolores? Well, I was thinking about, he was, he was saying about his father. His father still uh, likes to plant, and he has a little plot of land, I guess just a few yards of land, really, which he puts his tomatoes in. He, he goes the best tomatoes in the world. They're not the artificial yeah. tomatoes. Um, you know, just that's a very sad thing that the people who really love to farm can't farm. You mentioned the 12 cents an hour, and you were saying something to me. Oh, yes. Uh, when the Caesar mentioned they were working for 12 cents an hour, we had a meeting with a representative from the Philippines, uh, 
and he was telling us that the Filipinos in the Philippines are right now receiving 12 cents an hour for picking pineapples for the Del Monte and for Dole corporations. <laughs> so, you know, that it's uh, the people in other countries are being similarly exploited. Yeah, yeah. And I guess in some countries, and even here now, m the wages that a farm worker is earning would be equivalent to the 12 cents an hour mm -hmm. right now because there are no protections. Yeah. I was talking about the phrase following the crops. This is the aspect we haven't talked about, the being on the go all the time, the transient quality of life. Right, and that, and that, can be, that has been eliminated. You mm. know, when we have contracts, mm. we set up the hiring hall, we get rid of the labor contractor, mm. we make him illegal, mm. and we are able to, to, um, <coughs> we are able to uh, plan the labor, plan the workforce, you know, so that the farmer doesn't hire, say, 600 people to do a job in two weeks, we make them hire 300, mm -hmm. and they can do that job in two and a half months. And so you expand the, mm -hmm. the, the length of the workforce, and that some miraculous things happened in Delano after we got those contracts, because farm workers bought their homes, they built their homes, you know, right in the area, they put, kids could go to school. Mm -hmm. We had 11 children of farm workers go to college the first year that we got the contracts, which was a, just a miracle in itself. But that migrancy is a forced migrancy. You know, people don't like to drag their kids around yeah, the country. Personal. But they have no job security, so they have yeah. to, you know, they fire yeah. them and they have to keep moving. In organizing the farm workers, mm -hmm. uh, you've been there now how long, Dolores? Well, from the beginning. And uh, I think I learned some very important concepts from Caesar uh, that I'd like to share with you. And one of them was that people really had to understand organization in terms of how important it was. I remember one of the first jobs that Caesar gave me was to, to collect dues. You know, the members voted that they were going to pay 350 a month dues. So I would go into the homes of some of the workers and you go into a home where the children don't have any shoes, where they've got orange boxes for furniture. There's obviously no food anywhere around, you know, that you can see. And you ask that farmer, could they give you $3.50 for their dues? And that was a very hard thing for me to do, but it was a very good thing. Because, number one, it taught me not to be paternalistic, right? To understand that, that the worker had to pay for his own organization, had to build his own organization. And secondly, it was good for the workers because they understood that organization was more important than eating, you know? Because if, 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 if farm workers uh, are going to overcome their problems, they've got to have that organization. They've got to have that union. And I guess that's true about most people. Because the one thing that we proved in Delano uh, during the short time that we had that labor peace and we had those contracts is that poor people can solve their own problems. P poor people, uh, you don't have to have a college degree or a formal education. You know, Caesar's a grammar school dropout. And that people can solve their own problems if they are given a chance to form their own group of people, or fo to form their own organization. We proved that. And uh, that, that's, you know, they ha just have to be given that chance, that's all. Just a chance to be able to do that. So th it seems to me that your experiences there, too, helped in this observation of yours, and this, this growth of yours, too. The being an organizer and these various uh, encounters you had with, with the people themselves, the farm workers, that they, they have a stake now in many ways. They see it in several ways, don't they? Well, it's more than that. To farm workers, it's their total life. No. I mean, if anything is ever going to change for them or their children, this is it. And there's no other hope. This is the only hope that farm workers have. And sometimes people say to us, how can you keep going? Well, we keep going because we have a lot of hope and we have a lot of faith. And we know that uh, we'll win eventually if we just stay with it, you know, until we die. I mean, we are, have a total commitment that we're going to stay with this movement until we die. And we're going to build a national union. And maybe we'll be, we're boycotting grapes and gala wine this uh, uh, year. And who knows, next year we might be boycotting a, a, a citrus or Del Monte or somebody else. Oh. And we want people to understand that we're here for we're here to stay. We are here to stay. We're not going to go away. We're going to stay. Something else you said about us. the consumer. That's interesting. You know that in fighting for the betterment of the life mm -hmm. of the farm work helps mm -hmm. the consumer too. The very fact of sanitation itself. Oh, there is not one 
house person that wants to eat the food of exploitation. There is not one person that wants to see their to eat food that's picked by, by child labor or that's picked in a field where there's a, and nobody does, you know. And people want to help, but you just have to tell them how they yeah. can help. By the way, we have a very good training program now where we're asking people to come and join us to be able to do this organization because we have about 1,500 people working now throughout the country working on the boycott. And we're trying to get uh, another 1,500. And all we need is just, you know, people that just give us enough uh, money to, for, to eat, you know, just the money because, we do, you know, we don't get wages. We work for $5 a week. And all we need is enough food to keep on going mm. and to pay our telephone bill and our gasoline, what have you. And we want to ask more people to come and join our movement to work with us for six months. And it's a fantastically rewarding experience because you really learn more about uh, psychology, economics, politics, just by working and in, in, in getting people together. And uh, we have we would like to have people come to Chicago to help us here, New York, or any other place that they might want to work. By the way, you pointed out there, there's, uh, here there's, there are farm workers in this area, aren't mm-hmm. they? They're picking crops in this very area of Chicago, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah, right, right around the area of, of Chicago. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of agriculture yet in Illinois. And fruit in Michigan, mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. That, uh, by the various people, not just uh, Chicano, not just Mexican American people, Mexicans. That's a wide variety. You have you have Filipino people, you have Asiatics. A wide we have a lot of people. black farm workers also yeah. in Florida. Mm-hmm. About 60% of our membership is black, mm-hmm. and the director of our Florida mm-hmm. operation is a black farm worker from California, yep. Mac Lyons. Poor whites, too. Poor whites, also. And the great, beautiful thing about our contracts are that the racial barriers break down. You know, when people are working together for justice, they, you know, the whole racism thing. Dis- I think that's why racism is so <laughs> promoted, because if people stop uh, looking at each other uh, with, ho- you know, uh, ho- with hostility because of the differences in colors, then they start looking at the real enemy, who is the person that is putting them down. You know, if anything, Peggy Terry, who is white, who... Uh, was poor, is poor, was poor during the Depression. Remembered picking grapefruit, mm-hmm. and a little Mexican kid next to her, and she thought she was different, you know. And then uh, she tells these marvelous stories mm-hmm. of suddenly recognizing the the common bond. This little kid, you know, was eating some very hot peppers, and she oh, she he wants some, and uh, she was unaccustomed to it. Of course, her mouth was on fire, and he tore off a grapefruit and he gave it to her, mm-hmm. and then she realized, you know, the kid and the family are pretty much what she is. You know, in, mm-hmm. in the same plantation, as someone put it. Right. This is part of it, too, isn't it? We saw something beautiful that happened uh, when uh, Danji Daifula got killed. He's, this is an Arabian brother. We have a, a couple of thousand Arabians that have been brought in to work in the grapes and uh, in agriculture. And when Danji was killed, uh, the Arabians turned to Marshal Gans, who was the vice president of our union, who was Jewish. Mm-hmm. And they said, Marshal, would you lead us in prayer? And Marshal, his father was a rabbi, but Marshal turned to Adelina Gurola and said, Adelina, let's all say a rosary. You know, so, so here we are, Arabs and Jews and Catholics, Catholics. and Protestants, yeah. everybody kneeling down saying a rosary for Naji Daifula, an Arabian brother who was dying. But th- this, is a, this kind of brotherhood can be created, you know. It just has to be, if people just have to, uh, it has to be organized, you might say. You know, people have to be brought together mm-hmm. in, in community, and it can happen. And we're very, uh, I guess the reason I feel so strongly about our movement is because I know that, that this nonviolent movement of brotherhood can really work, because I've seen it work. You know, I believe in the miracle of goodwill and the miracle of people getting together and make, to make justice happen. I know it's going to happen. And of course, part of the movement, part of the work of the farm work is music, song. Mm-hmm. It's always there, isn't it? I'm thinking like Kazala's album. We heard Adalita earlier. What's one? Ninos Campesinos. That's the one, what, the, the children of, of uh, workers, children yes, of, right. of farm workers. Uh-huh. Can we hear the song? You find it. Good. 
Vive la Huelga, meaning uh, long live the uh, strike. Mm -hmm. This song, you know the song? Yes, the niños campesinos, the children of the farm workers. It's written for your children. Well, it was written for my children and the other children of the strikers in yeah. Delano who were very much involved. They kind of grow up on the picket line, you might say, and, you know, they're talking to the children that are brought in as strike breakers, and that's, it's Just about Just occurred to me uh, uh, before we say goodbye and, and talk about the program that I'd remind the audience, the children, many of the children, that's all they've known all their lives, isn't it? Since they've grown up on the picket line. That's right. My, my, one of my little boys was eight years old when we came to New York City on the first boycott, and he's now a 17, you know, yeah. so they've grown up in the union, yeah. and I know it's, it's good for them because the wonderful thing about them is that they have a conscience about other people, and that to me is so fantastic. Yeah. They will not tolerate any kind of uh, exploitation of anybody, and that to me that's the greatest yeah. gift that they can yeah. have. Yeah, that's, that's more important than a college degree. <laughs> Dolores Huerta my guest. She's the first vice president of Farm Workers of America, and she'll be talking tonight at the Palacio Theater, where this very beautiful film, which I happened to see last night, is playing. It's 4040 North Sheridan, 8 o'clock, and those go fighting for our lives, and I imagined our lives, our is the word, involving many, many people. Dolores Huerta, Vive la Huelga. Thank you very much. Thank you were going to say something else before we say goodbye. I, I was just going to invite people to join with us on a, on a march that we're going to have on May the 10th. Uh, we're going to be meeting at uh, Montrose Park on Lake Lakeshore Drive in Montrose uh, at 10.30 on May the 10th, and uh, Eliseo Medina will be heading up that march, and we'd like to have as many people as possible. We're going mm -hmm. to walk over to Jewel's store to ask Jewel not to bring in any table grapes this year, and I'm hoping that uh, people would use their power in that respect and do that and just talk to their to th talk to their local store manager and ask them, please don't bring in any grapes. You know, help the farm workers get those contracts back. Let's force the growers into an election in California, in Arizona. And if they could also talk to their liquor store and just ask them not to bring in any Gallo wine or Ripple or Thunderbird or Madria Sangria or any of those wines, that would be they would be doing the farm workers and Caesar a great big favor if they could do that one little thing. Dolores Huerta, thank you very much. <laughs>